You can subscribe and get early access to these shows by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. This is the second hour of tonight's live Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, live from a, an undisclosed location deep in the woods of western Wisconsin, talking tonight about what's really going on with the massive geopolitical crisis and seemingly a, a very a big sweeping change in the geopolitical order and in the monetary basis of it in particular. In the first hour, I just got done talking with Merrill Nass about the obvious multi-billion dollar frauds in pushing bogus information about COVID-19, presumably with the purpose of keeping the pandemic emergency going for that full two years until it could suddenly be replaced with the Russia-Ukraine emergency. So a lot of folks think that the COVID emergency was really all about the Great Reset. We've heard about Klaus Schwab and his global leaders that he's groomed. We've heard about the financial swindles that I'll talk about during the final half hour of this show with John Titus, uh, the transfer of trillions of dollars from the middle class to the super wealthy. And now I'm going to bring on Matthew Errett of CanadianPatriot.org to address the question that has arisen quite a bit of whether Russia and China are on board with this great reset or are they enemies of the New World Order that's pursuing the Great Reset. What's really going on with Russia and China? Uh, and from there, we can move on to some other topics. But let's let's start with that. Hey, uh, Matt, are you there? Yeah. Hey, Kevin, can you hear me? Yes, we got gotcha. you. Hey, welcome, Matt. How are you? Hey, it was a pleasure to be on. I'm good. Okay, so a great reset time. Uh, Merrill Nass described in excruciating medical and scientific detail the kinds of frauds that have been perpetrated around COVID. It looks like somebody with a vast amount of money wanted the COVID pandemic to happen and wanted to keep it going. Well, that leads to the question of why and who. And I think you have a pretty good idea of who are the usual suspects. And you recently wrote an article about whether or not uh, the Russian and Chinese governments are in bed with these usual suspects or not. And you argued that it looks like they aren't. I would tend to agree. So maybe you could take it from there. Yeah, the way I tend to usually approach this, and I, I mean, I have had a lot of uh, my supporters and readers uh, write to me in recent weeks uh, describing how they've become confused over the idea that maybe indeed China and, and Russia are entirely in bed with Klaus Schwab and the Davos agenda and the Great Reset and everything that goes with that. Um, one day I woke up and there was like 30 emails and uh, a lot of the people had watched James, James Corbett had done something that had gone viral, um, laying out a certain case, um, using an argument that relied a lot on, um, words like look at the words that China and Russia have used in their partnership agreement for a new era on February 4th. They use the words like new economic order. Sounds a lot like new world order. They say things like sustainable development, uh, um, you know, that's uh fourth industrial revolution comes up in, in many of the leaders on, on the Eurasian side of the world. And so does Klaus Schwab. He says fourth industrial revolution as well. So they must be all in on it. My point is twofold. Uh, you have to be aware that there are there are fifth columns and deep states in every single country. 
there are no there is no country that doesn't have that that doesn't have uh, deep penetrations of enemy operations that are beholden to something which is anti-human and that is committed as the great reset agenda I, I believe people listening are aware the great reset ideology is premised on the concept of resetting all of the world the cultures of the society the religions kind of like they were a, we were living in a big computer game or a, let's say a hard drive that could be reset like a like a like a digital you know binary system and then turn back on again with a new homogenized world uh, ethic um in conformity with this technocratic elite people like Klaus Schwab you know and and the network of people who get processed through the great reset sort of or the young leaders form in, in Davos these are people who are trained increasingly to be kind of transhumanist, which is, in my view, anti-humanist. The belief that, you know, we're going to merge with with machines in order to stay relevant. Um, I don't see that when I look at Russia and China, especially as well as India and other countries um, there. I see a fight by factions which uh, don't want to sacrifice their ancient civilizations on an altar of some weird, you know, mass sacrifice. And indeed, I, I do see that there is uh, something being brought online, which is antithetical to the Great Reset agenda, like Russia and China. I, I when I, when you look at what they do, not just what they say, but what their actions are and policies, there has been a program that is based upon population growth, industrial, massive, robust industrial development, which is the opposite of the Great Reset agenda, which is deindustrialize, shut down the ability to have the energy needs, the food production needs needed to sustain our populations at current or even less uh, levels, quantitatively and qualitatively. So I just see that the the entire orientation is very different, and I don't think that they are, uh, or at least the current leadership of Russia and China are in any way in bed with the Klaus Schwab um, groupings. Well, some of the similarities, uh, Matt, could possibly come from the fact that people on both sides, whether it's the Russia-China-Iran axis of national sovereignty or the other side, the oligarchy in the West, uh, which, you know, you've argued is centered to some extent in the city of London and those traditions going back to Venice. There's a whole historical trajectory there. But the, the Western Malthusian oligarchy uh, and their you know, counterparts in, in this other grouping of Russia, China, Iran, they might all see that there's a crisis coming. That is, that U.S. dollar hegemony, for example, is ultimately doomed. That, you know, since the Bretton Woods order was trashed by Nixon and Kissinger, the U.S. stopped respecting uh, the dollar gold link. So the petrodollar was born, and they've been printing as many dollars as they want and using them to build military bases all over the world ever since then. But that can't continue forever. And indeed, it, you know, the writing's been on the wall for a while. And so everybody sees that there's going to have to be some kind of, quote, unquote, reset of the geopolitical monetary order. Mm -hmm. But then they may not have precisely the same desires about how to do that. That is, the, the Western yeah. oligarchs want to expand their control and power and turn the whole world into a neoliberal oligarchy, whereas the Russian government, or some of them at least, and the Chinese government, some of them, and the Iranian government, all of them would rather keep some national sovereignty. And uh, they don't mind the dollar going down, but they would prefer that a multipolar world emerge 
not ruled by these Western oligarchs. So that's how I see it. They both see yeah. the, the crisis and the change coming, but they have different desires about how, where it should go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, uh, the fact is that this current system, when the dollar, the U.S. dollar was removed from the gold reserve uh, system and the fixed exchange rate of, in 1971 by Henry Kissinger, George Schultz and the emerging grouping around the Trilateral Commission that really was brought online in 1973 with Carter, um, the idea was always to convert a once viable uh, economy of the post you know 25 years after world war ii it was an industrial economy that was based upon an idea of uh having the monetary system tied in some way directly to measurable productive values in society so you couldn't just justify in the 1950s or 60s the increase of the monetary supply without a, an analog increase of something measurable as far as the industrial, the investments into the, in, the infrastructure industries that had to be there. After 1971, and especially with the petrodollar, the, the idea of economics increasingly became tied to just creating fictitious capital with speculative activities that became ever more detached from reality to the point that today's derivatives bubbles are, you know, it's, it's like a casino on steroids with, with, you know, high frequency trading in, in picoseconds. It, it is based upon, uh, the type of monetary idea, ideas that allow you to print 25, 30 trillion dollars that has been put into, uh, you know, bailing out too big to fails. And none of that, hardly anything has gone into the real economy for the past decade or more. Whereas, let's say in China, look at Sergei Glaziev, um, somebody who's been an, an advisor to Putin for a long time. He's been um, a, a, a voice of sanity, a real powerful patriot of Russia who understands the nature of history and the, the, the great game very, very well. He recently gave an interview describing the, the nature of the new multipolar system that he is largely spearheading in many ways with his – he's the guy who is uh, largely behind the Eurasian – uh, Economic Union China Commission to create an alternative financial um, architecture. And he, in this interview, I, I published it on the Canadian Patriot site. Anyone can go there and, and read his whole, whole interview. It's very clear that he is making the point that the the new system has to be based upon a return to um, – not just, obviously the U.S. dollar is not going to be the, the basis of the, the global uh, system as it has been for 40 plus years, but it'll be on, on a mixed basket of a variety of currencies, ruples, rupees, yuan, a variety of things, but those themselves will not be the basis of exchange. It will be based upon ultimately a, a, a spectrum of 10 to 20 com core commodities uh, that themselves have a, a viable connection to the real world. You have to have a certain energy base to be able to produce and, and process uh, the wheat, the gold, the ores, the, the other commodities that will be the basis upon which we m create a basis of value going forward. It won't just be based on speculation. Up until now, Russia, and he's been a big opponent of the, the liberalizers who were brought in, in during the 1990s under the control of people like George Soros, who poured two $2 billion as he bragged into buying up and, uh, you know, formerly state-owned Russian enterprises and facilitating the liberalization of Russia alongside people like Strobe Talbot, the Rhodes Scholar, Victoria Newland, 
who was Strobe Talbot's personal assistant in the 90s under Clinton and Al Gore. So that whole thing was, you know, a real a real rape of Russia after uh, the Cold War. People like Anatoly Chubai, who was a Davos creature. He created the Davos Pact in 1996 to prop up Yeltsin. And then he created the Russian version of Davos, the the um, Gaydar um, uh, forum in, in 2009. That's that's Anatoly Chubai. Was, Isn't uh, it amazing that he was hanging on all those years after, you know, helping create Yeltsin's wonderful program yeah. that, that impoverished Russians and, and led to eight, a eight year loss of male life expectancy. Um, <laughs> somehow he kept his job. It's almost like the neocons in America keeping their jobs even after the disasters of the 9-11 wars. I mean, what, but finally it looks like Putin got rid of Shubai. He jumped ship, yeah, like a rat that he is. He finally got out. Um, and Putin really made it clear that he was going to be doing a clampdown on the, or an additional new purge on the, uh, the fifth columnists that still are there. Uh, it, it, it's surprising. I agree that after all of the, the damage that he did, Putin even called him out for being a CIA stooge back in 2013. But despite that, Putin, he would, Chubai had a lot of protection. And there's a, a force that I don't fully understand, but that, um, has kept a lot of these evil swamp creatures relatively safe and in power. There's a whole network. I, I've written an article. It's, it's actually a chapter of my oncoming book um, going through a, an anatomy of some of the Russian swamp creatures like, uh, you know, Galikova, the deputy prime minister, former minister of health, who's now in charge of all of the COVID protocols of Russia that took the power power away from the federal government and, and put it in the position into the hands of the local authorities in Russia. So the federal government under COVID mandates of the World Health Organization uh, applied by Golikova, um, the federal government has not been allowed to influence that. So there's been a fight between the federal and local authorities. Um, the mayor of Moscow being another creature who's who's a part of this Chubai network. Um, Kudrin, the fired finance minister, is another one. So there's this whole complex deep state thing that was, again, brought in the 90s. It's still largely there, even though Putin purged big elements of it. He, you know, he imprisoned a variety of Russian oligarchs that wouldn't play ball. For those who wanted to avoid prison, they, they were given sanctuary in London or Florida to avoid prison. Some of them did play ball for a bit. But overall, it's a fight, you know, and people just have to appreciate, I think, a little bit more that there's nuance. You know, it's not all good, all bad. There's a complex dynamic uh, within every nation. You see it also within China. There are there are traitors and swamp creatures like Jack Ma, sort of the, the Chinese Bill Gates in China, who called for effectively a financial regime change against Xi Jinping in the, uh, you know, in 2020. And uh, unlike our leaders who <laughs> let the world, you know, economic forum trustees become the heads of our state, like, like in Canada, you know, I, I think Klaus Schwab was telling the truth that half the Canadian cabinet were economic forum young leaders. With the case of Jack Ma, who is a World Economic Forum trustee, he, he was basically he opened his mouth. He called for insurrection, essentially, and he was taken completely down. You know, he's put in a, his little mansion. He was allowed to keep a few billion dollars, but he was stripped of all of his political powers and privileges. And that's the way it should be. You know, and that's how it is in these countries like Russia, China, and Iran, where there's a, a government that keeps their oligarchs under control. Apparently, the, the Western oligarchs don't like that. They want to destroy all those systems so that the oligarchs will have total impunity wherever they roam. You got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, you know that's something I always throw at people who say that yeah, China and Russia are, are just as equally puppets for Klaus Schwab's empire. You, know, you get these cartoonish theories, and it's like yeah, okay, well then why did China ban Soros in 1989 when Soros's you know stooge 
Zhao Jiang was was essentially put in was imprisoned in his house for 15 years until he died after trying to run a color revolution. Soros was taken. All of his open society operations were canceled, made it illegal and never, never uh, China never opened up to Soros ever again. And Russia did the same thing in 2015. And yet here these are the creatures who are like running our regime change in America. They're they're run, they're running, you know, Soros is funding our courts, our judicial systems, our media. I mean, everything in our life is being influenced by these uh, creatures who are banned from Russia and China. So it's like, uh, you know, there, there's a statement in the Bible in, in the book of Matthew that um, remove the the before you criticize the splinter in your brother's eye, remove the log from your own. And I think there's a certain lack of humility. Yeah, and, and that statement from the Bible would apply also to the propaganda about the uh, evil Russian oligarchs who support Putin. You know, we just saw these sanctions against the so-called Russian oligarchs. And, you know, in our media, I was just listening to NPR the other day. I, I don't really listen to that by choice, but when I'm driving, it's kind of, you know, it's it's opposition research. <laughs> listen to Wisconsin Public Radio while I drive, and uh, I heard a propaganda broadcast about Putin and those Russian oligarchs. And the expert on the Russian oligarchs um, who had written a book for some university press essentially, you know, is, is casting Russia as this totally corrupt society where the oligarchs rule everything. And and, uh, you know, Putin is in bed with them. Putin's one of them. And so we have to get these oligarchs under control without the slightest admission that we have an oligarch problem, uh, a much worse problem than Putin does right here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my God, you know, you you look at the uh, the entire wealth transfer that's even just happened in the course of COVID-19, where all of a sudden Bill Gates has become the primary owner of farmland in the United States um, that people have just not been paying attention to or BlackRock and Vanguard that own with State Street, you know, like God knows how much real estate, commercial real estate, residential, they're even buying more than market value for a lot of houses right now because they know that the money is going to be going up in smoke. So the money doesn't mean much to them. What they're all going for right now is control of all of the the things we live in. You know, that's why Warren Buffett has been like buying up infrastructure and rail lines for the past 15, 20 years because he knows that the whole financial system that he's simply a, a part of, he's like a pirate in it. It's it's ultimately designed to collapse. That was the whole thing that was put in place in, 19, in, 2000, in uh, 1971 was a transformation of a once viable economy into a time bomb. And it was as a time bomb designed to do but one thing, which is well, in this case, it was destroy along the way, um, create debt slavery en masse, transfer power from sovereign nation states into a supranational uh, system of controls run by you know, a network of Bilderberger, uh, increasingly Davos, which is sort of the junior expression of the Bilderberger groups, um, as a as a super, super national cartel of financiers and corporate interests, and uh, and then at the same time set up a bubble that would be able to be detonated at a certain moment, which is now ha- happening. So uh, yeah, we live in a in a hyper corrupt, hyper oligarchical system with only the slimmest of veneers of democracy that that are remaining, and people still have a little bit of agency left. Uh, it hasn't all been stripped down, so there is still some things to fight with, but it's not very much. So to go and criticize uh, the other side of this iron curtain for all of their problems when we have such a mess to clean up here in our own backyard is uh, the height of hypocrisy. Well, do you think if the other side of the iron curtain prevails? in this geopolitical and economic struggle to the extent of 
preserving their sovereignty and perhaps uh, causing more havoc in the Western economies than they suffer themselves when the sanctions blow back and suddenly uh, Russia demands payment for energy and, and other things in rubles. And suddenly the, you know, the, the dollar and the Western economies are starting to implode and people's lifestyles uh, start to be completely destroyed, impoverished. Uh, the, the farmers are suddenly transferred. No, you know, Bill Gates buys up all their farmland, so they own nothing, and they're supposed to be happy. But they may not be so happy when they've lost the farm. So people may get uh, up in arms. I mean, I would think that if it's, you know, I, I always said after 9/11 that it would take some combination of a military defeat and an economic collapse to wake the American people up to 9/11 and and the rest of it. And, uh, and, and cause, cause regime, you know, bring the much needed regime change here at home. And I'm wondering if that could happen as a result of, uh, of Putin really pulling the plug on this, uh, attempt to consolidate power among the Western oligarchs. Uh, do you, do you see the possibility of a kind of a, a de facto military financial defeat leading to, uh, populist uprisings and regime changes in the West? Well, I won't necessarily speak directly to the populist uprisings and regime changes in the West per se, but I will say this, that I do think that the um, the importance and what gives me great hope when I look at the operating system that is being fought for and that is quickly being brought online by the Eurasian Multipolar Alliance is that it is premised on certain uh, fundamental con- uh, conceptions, namely an idea that like it, it's all about a systems fight, right? We live in a system, whether we like it or not, or whether we know it or not. We live in a system. Our, we everything is a system. Our body is a system of cells, of organs. The the you know there, we live in an economy which is made up of eight billion people that is part of one single system. We have an interconnected interrelationship. Um, the solar system is a system. It's all systems. The the fight has really been when I look at history, how the system is conceptualized, whether it is a um, a closed finite system like a, a if the by that i mean the whole being defined as the sum of its parts in that an oligarch will always tend to do that an imperialist will always be like okay well i, I i'm here to my incentive is to control what exists it is in my it is in my detriment to allow new ideas new principles that don't yet exist to be brought into the system because i want to just monopolize that which exists and control the diminishing rate of returns over people while they fight for diminishing scarcity or diminishing resources in a world of scarcity uh, that I've overall monopolized. And that's that's the sort of technique of empire going back to the days of ancient Rome and, and probably before that. Um, it's gotten more complex, but it's essentially that. If you think of the system as being more than the, the sum of parts, um, like, I mean, you know, like your body, you know, it's made up of Look at your body compared to a body of a corpse, right? You might have somebody who just died a few minutes ago. They, they're made up of similar atoms and molecules, but the animating force of their body is absent of, of life. Whereas your body being living, your, all of the activity of the parts are being tra- moved and, and controlled by a principle of life, which is more than you can't locate life in one single place. It's a principle. So, you know, you've got, I think, the oligarchy is committed to an idea of a principle of death. It's a system that is simply devoid of creative vitality, soul, life. They don't believe that because you can't chart it in a computer model. Whereas when I look at the Russia-China system, 
And I look at what China's done with the Belt and Road Initiative, the pulling out of poverty of 800 million people in a very short period of time and their capacity to emit long-term state-backed generated credit through national banking institutions for like 10, 20 or 50 year projects, even like the big move Southwater North project that's going to be greening big chunks of the Gobi Desert. Um, it's all premised on an idea of, of something which utilizes a, a centralized coordination. So it has a central harmonization, but at the same time, it doesn't, it's not stagnant. It doesn't, it's not based upon just controls. It has a, fle- a managerial flexibility to it based upon an introduction, an, an incubation of new, new ideas and technologies and their introduction into the productive process, which is what we, we used to have a long time ago and we lost it like, Really, when Bobby Kennedy was killed, we we let go of that type of spirit. So there there is an open system, and I believe the universe is an open system, that God's creation is a creation of love and creativity and constant growth qualitatively, not just quantitatively, and that if we're going to be viable, we have to make sure that our political economic laws are in harmony with God's law which is that to be open to constant constant self-perfectibility, constant change for the better. Um, the oligarchical system is in total defiance of that. The Great Reset Agenda, which is Malthusian, it's based upon a commitment almost religious-like to reducing the world population and keeping us as dumb as humanly possible, is based on a complete defiance of what the universe demands that we be. So I would be a lot more depressed if I didn't see that type of quality of thinking coming from the, the resistance on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And I, I do think that we do have an ability, and I know we're running out of time here, but if we're going to be able to survive, it will be because we can harmonize our uh, policies w- with those things that Russia, China, Iran are doing with their large-scale pro-industrial scientific projects and cooperation amongst nation-states under win-win um, it could get messy in the in the immediate weeks and months ahead. It will probably get much more messier and very uncomfortable. But I don't think the oligarchy can win this one. They're just they're too mediocre at this point. They've dumbed themselves down. Look at Justin Trudeau or Biden or, you know, like th- their managerial class in the, <laughs> the unipolar system is so stupid. They're so limited in their quality of thinking that I don't think that they can compete with a real human like a like a Glaziev or a Putin or a Wang Yi who's just a real human like they think like they think creatively all right well you know your, your uh, theological speculations there reminded me a little bit of process theology based on whitehead i've had john cobb and david ray griffin the two best known process theologians on the show quite a few times hmm. of course they in some ways uh would you know lean not so much towards malthusianism per se but they're very, very concerned about, you know, the ecological carrying capacity of the planet, uh, global warming and, and things like that, even though they, their theological vision of the need for constant uh, change and improvement uh, very much dovetails with what you said. Uh, maybe sometime I can get you on to talk with uh, John Cobb. Uh, would you hmm. be interested in that? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, because that, that, I think that would be a great conversation. Um, we're coming up for, uh, in Ramadan, I like to do uh, spiritually engaged radio. So uh, maybe we can bring Matt back with John Cobb, the uh, eminent process theologian. Shout out to John if you're listening. I, uh, I definitely uh, respect his work. Well, we, we are at a, a, an interesting historical moment here. And, and uh, Matt, Eric, you're doing fantastic uh, work analyzing it. I think you've got one of the most uh, productive analyses going and i think your your critique 
of the Corbett video on, on Russia and China being in on it. They're all in on it. I think, I think it uh, stands uh, pretty strong. Um, it'd be nice to get Corbett on and argue with you too. That would be interesting. <laughs> I, I always like to yeah. get people arguing on the show and, and uh, bouncing different perspectives off each no, other. I think that's the, that's the best way to, to really just flesh out ideas. It's, it's not good to have echo chambers too much. So yeah, I agree. I think your, your technique's good. Okay. Well, uh, we'll see what we can do for debating partners <laughs> for you next time. But uh, right. I think we've we've finished up this one. So thank you so much, uh, Matthew Errett of CanadianPatriot.org. And you've got a Substack now as well. Um, did I miss any websites? Yeah, MatthewErrett.Substack.com and uh, Telegram, uh, T.me backslash Canadian Patriot Press. Okay. Well, sounds good. Take care, Matt. Take care. Bye. Bye. That's Matthew Arrett of Canadian Patriot and other places. And, uh, he's pretty much barking up the same tree, I think, as, as all of our guests tonight. Um, Merrill Nass started out by documenting the fraud that kept the COVID scamdemic going. And we uh, have now been discussing with, with Matt how the, uh, COVID issue seems to be uh, very much related to the Western oligarchy's attempt to spread its brand of neoliberal oligarchy all over the planet. And now we're going to talk with John Titus. He works with Catherine Austin Fitz, who's been on this show, although it's been a while now, uh, at Solari. And he's uh, both a lawyer and now a uh, finance monetary expert who's done some really good work analyzing what's up with the monetary shift that we're seeing now and that may be suddenly accelerating as Russia starts selling its oil in rubles only and OPEC is supporting Russia, not the United States. This could be a titanic shift, and John Titus is definitely one of the best guys to talk about that with. So let's see if we have him on yet. Uh, John, are you there? I am. Hey, good great to, to have you. Well, it's thank good you. to be here. Thanks for yeah. having me. I've been admiring your work and uh, the work of Solari for quite some time, you know, ever since uh, Catherine was involved with Mike Rupert in the original 9-11 Truth Movement, which I discovered pretty early on and uh, led to me getting booted out of the academy and doing these radio shows. <laughs> good, good for you. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, not everybody sees that as a career promotion, <laughs> but I think it was in the larger scheme of things. So, so John, are, are we seeing... Uh, this kind of collapse of the petrodollar regime that everybody's been talking about for decades now with suddenly Russia demanding rubles for its gas and uh, an OPEC backing up Russia? I mean, I wouldn't have imagined this happening so fast. Yeah, things are moving quickly. Uh, I, I don't think, yeah, it's it's it might be cast as collapse of the petrodollar, but it really, to me, uh, looks, if you look at some of the internal documents in the U.S., particularly coming uh, from the Treasury and ratified by the Federal Reserve Chairman, uh, Jerome Powell, it looks more like the end of the debt-based monetary system insofar as the dollar is concerned. So to, to explain that, I'd just say pretty much every jurisdiction in the world uh, with precious few exceptions, has a debt-based monetary system. But the U.S. is at the end of, of its life cycle. Um, we're, we're at the end, meaning that the U.S. now is at a point where it's essentially borrowing money to make what is equivalent to an interest payment. 
And once you once you're at that point, when you're borrowing money to make the interest payment, it's it's over, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the debt will never be paid back, and they no. recognize that, so they have to find a way to write it off. But how do you do that? Um, you the the classic recipe is to inflate your way, try to inflate your way out of your problem, and that's what we're seeing right now. So the other way, what the treasury, of course, the treasury and the Fed don't say that. Although they know that, that's just a classic um, means that a, that a debt, that somebody in a lot of debt trouble would try to to get out. They try to get out from under their debt by issuing uh, cheaper money, and and that's just what they do to try to get out from a, the monstrous debt. You you're trying to what you're trying to do is to pay off the debt tomorrow with cheaper dollars that you manufacture today. It's a tried and true. It, it never works, but it's what people do at the very end. The other thing the Treasury recommends in its fiscal, latest fiscal year report um, is severe cuts, basically austerity. They're saying, listen, we need to reduce Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. We need to reduce a lot of spending. We need to, we need to cut it to the tune of 6 to 7% of GDP, which is a lot of money. It doesn't sound like a lot. It's a lot of money. But wait a minute, how does that actually uh, solve the problem? Uh, these, these debt instruments with, you know, supposedly up to like $600 trillion in derivatives and, you know, every dollar actually is, is actually, it represents debt, not value because it's created by being loaned into existence at interest. It has to be paid back plus, plus the interest. So right. essentially all of our monetary instruments from greenbacks to derivatives to everything in between, everything that's on paper or digital, Really represents debt, right. and I don't see how cutting back on, <laughs> you know, on the uh, social security payments and Medicare is going to make even a dent in that. It's not. But there, there, there's two separate things. When you mention um, derivatives and things like that, what we're talking about now in terms of what the Treasury has said is an unsustainable debt path, we're talking about sovereign debt. That is that is money that the U.S. has borrowed. To finance this deficit, when you talk about derivatives and whatnot, that's private debt. We're talking about we're talking about sovereign debt. That's that's the end. And so now the Treasury is out, and Jerome Powell has has come out and said himself, the U.S. is on a fiscally unsustainable path. um, Meaning, what the way they cast it is, the debt is growing meaningfully meaningfully faster than GDP. I'm here to tell you that's really they're not addressing the problem. The problem is that you. When you look at your non-negotiable payments, meaning your interest payment, plus Social Security, plus Medicare, plus Medicaid, all of those things sort of arising from either an express or social contract, those four things added together are now greater than your tax base. It's greater than your receipts. And now essentially what you're doing is you're borrowing to make your interest payment. So to to give you sort of a real-world example, let's say you take out a $100,000 mortgage, to keep things simple, we'll make it a 12% interest rate, which is 1% a month. So that at the end of the first month of that loan, you now owe $101,000, right? Instead of $100,000 because it gained 1%. So just from that, you know that you have to pay more than $1,000 to reduce, to bring that, that debt back down to under what it was before. Otherwise, if you don't make that payment, it's going to spiral above 
$100,000, and it's going to do so exponentially. And that's where we are now with the U.S. debt. We are now borrowing to make the essential payment, and it, thus it is ball game. It is lights out for the U.S., and, and the powers that be know this. And I think what you're seeing monetarily across the globe is you're seeing the transfer. The U.S. is going to lose its world reserve currency status. I don't know whether you know this, but Jerome Powell got up in front of the House Financial Services Committee on March 2nd, and he was asked, he says, hey, you know, China and Russia, they're transacting exclusively in their own native currencies. Pakistan's thinking about joining them. What effect might that have on the on the economy? And, and Powell says, even though the, the question was limited to the U.S. economy, he immediately brings up world reserve currency status It says, well, you know, we have that status because we have the rule of law and we have low inflation, both of which aren't true. We don't have low inflation anymore, and we just destroy the rule of law by freezing Russia's reserves with no due process. There's no statutory basis to do that to Russia. There was no legal proceeding to do that. The money is a it's a it, money is a creature of law. It's a creature of statute. So to just willy nilly up and throw a temper tantrum and freeze Russia's assets, you're announcing to the to the world that you no longer have the rule of law. And thus, by Powell's own testimony saying we deserve world reserve currency status because of low inflation and the rule of law, we don't have those things anymore. And then Powell turns around in that same testimony and says, oh, by the way. There was a period of time where you had two world reserve currencies at the same time. Thus, that's possible. And so he's, he's, saying, he's clearly portending the shift from a single world reserve currency, i.e. the U.S. dollar, to a like a dual, some sort of system of dual world reserve currencies, eventually phasing out the dollar altogether. That's my read in that testimony. But it's out on the table now. Both the fiscal sustainability is out on the table. And the, the passage of the, of the exclusivity of the dollar as a world reserve currency is now being openly addressed by the powers that be. And then the question is, how will that play out uh, in terms of the domestic economy, which is what, of course, they, they were asking, Powell. And I've had Ellen Brown on the show many times. I had Michael Hudson on recently. And they seem to think that the sovereign debt problem, that is the international balance of payments problem, is uh, somewhat separate from the domestic issue. That is that the essentially Hudson argues that the U.S. with its petrodollar has managed to finance building military bases all over the world by spending dollars into other places where we build those military bases. And we won't be able to do that anymore. Once the petrodollar collapses, we lose our uh, reserve currency status. Uh, but he and especially Ellen Brown might say that that doesn't necessarily mean that this debt problem is going to blow up our domestic economy because the uh, essentially the government can print money to be used in the domestic economy up to a certain limit where it becomes inflationary, uh, but it doesn't have to run a balanced budget. Uh, you can have a yeah, very prosperous economy without a balanced budget. So what, what, what's your take on that? They're dead wrong about that. They're, they're simply – they're incorrect about that for the reason I said. They, they by their own – what they just said, if I understand you correctly, is you can just finance – you can just print as much money as you want up until the point where you have inflation. Right. Now you yeah. now, now you got inflation. It's here, and it's, it's entrenched, and it started with 
it started with, with, with the way the, the Fed ran QE during the pandemic. Let me take a step back, okay? Mm-hmm. Before the pandemic, it's August 2019, the Federal Reserve is hosting a conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. BlackRock gets up and presents a paper called Dealing with the Next Downturn. And BlackRock says to all the central banks around the world, you know, you're going to have another downturn soon. And when you do, when you, when you have this next downturn, which turned out to be right around the corner, when you have this next downturn, what you need to do is you need to find a way to get the public money, meaning the reserves that the Federal Reserve can create out of thin air, you need to find a way to get that public money into private hands, meaning you get it into people's bank accounts, which hadn't been done at that point. But they said in the same paper, BlackRock says, you know, when you do this, okay, it's helicopter money. When you do the helicopter money approach like we're talking about, you got to be you got to be aware of this, that there you could have runaway inflation. And to date, you know, no one's really figured out how to get the inflation genie back into the bottle. But that's what you got to do. And then six months later, what's going on? The Fed is doing exactly what BlackRock said. It is it is printing up new reserves, three point five, four trillion dollars. And it is using those reserves and it is buying assets. But it's buying assets differently than it did with QE during 09-10 back then. In, in the pandemic version of QE, the Fed's using new reserves not to buy assets from commercial banks, but to buy them from non-banks. And that is a crucial difference, which hardly anybody is talking about. And the reason it's crucial is that when you, if the Federal Reserve comes to you and says, hey, Barrett, we want, we want to buy you know, your car. With reserves, you'd say, well, go pound sand because I don't have an account with the Fed. I can't use the reserves. At that point, the Fed says, OK, well, here's what we'll do. We'll give you 100 grand for your car in reserves. You you give us the title to your car. And what we'll do, you bank it. I'm going to make up the bank. You bank it for citizens. OK, what we'll do, you transfer the title to your car. And what we'll do is we'll go to first citizens. We'll give them the reserves of one hundred thousand dollars. And what First Citizens will have to do, since they're now sitting on a $100,000 asset and their books no longer balance to the tune of hundred grand, they will create an account in your name for $100,000 where you'll have a bank account for hundred grand, And that's how we'll pay for your car. Now, First Citizens banks, their books balance out because your bank account, it's an asset to you. It's a liability to them. And that's how the Fed did QE. So when the Fed created $3.5 trillion of new reserves, they in parallel forced the creation of $3.5 trillion of new bank money. And that's why you're seeing inflation now. And BlackRock flat out warned about inflation when they ran, when they said, when you Fed, you're going to do this scheme, you're going to get runaway inflation. And that's where we are now. So and the reason that they're doing, the reason they want runaway inflation is that it's the classic maneuver that a debtor nation, an issuing currency nation, uses when it's when it's running out of runway, and its its debt is too high. It, it try it, it's trying to finance its debt, but too much of its debt is going to things it has no control over, like interest payments, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and that's what they're doing. So I, I just completely disagree with people who think that oh, you can just print your own money. Uh, in a debt-based monetary system as much as you want and never run into inflation. We're running into inflation right now. Mm -hmm. You see it everywhere. 
So I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, now I agree with him on the petrodollar. That's a separate arena, and that's for sure what's going on with Russia. You know, we have a bunch of spoiled brats in the U.S. administration here. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, Putin has completely, you know, played them like a violin, and now they got to pay for this stuff in, in rubles. I mean, they were trying to default on the payments. They already got the gas, and then they go, aha, we tricked you. You know, you're sanctioned. You know, you can't even make your payment. Putin's like, fine, pay us in the rubles. You know, he completely checkmated him. And it just, it was like a, the guy's a judo black belt, and it shows. He just slammed these guys to the floor with, you know, one move. And some people would speculate that uh, the problem down the line for Americans when the petrodollar collapses uh, is that the declining value of the dollar will lead to so much of the stuff that we import, you know, everything in Walmart and, and everywhere else will suddenly become a lot more expensive. So that coupled with the runaway inflation that's already happening uh, could conceivably lead to a, a pretty severe economic crunch, couldn't it? I, I would imagine so. And and there's, a, there's yet another factor in play, which is that if, if you look at currency and circulation in the U.S., that, that means cash, basically Federal Reserve notes. It's sitting at about, I don't know, 2.1 or $2.2 trillion you know, of bills floating around there. Most of those are overseas. If the U.S. loses world reserve currency – and the economy begins to teeter, a lot of those dollars are going to wash back on the U.S. shore, and it's going to just fuel inflation that much more. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so again, this seemingly could create the conditions for uh, some serious political unrest here. And I, I wonder if the censorship and the propaganda uh, that we've seen developing over the past several years that got really intense during COVID and is continuing uh, during this uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis is partly uh, aimed at conditioning the public uh, to obedience, you know, so that when things get really hairy, that people will, rather than rebel, they will continue to obey orders the way they've been, you know, mindlessly masking up when they're told to and so on and so forth and mindlessly uh, hating on Russia and waving little Ukraine flags. <laughs> uh, I mean, is, do you see that as a, a – it, it seems to me there's there's been a – yeah, you could even push it back, you know, to say 9-11, which was obviously right. a form of trauma-based mind control that worked for a while and they got everybody waving little American flags the way people are waving little Ukraine flags. Now that wore off pretty fast though. The internet busted that wide open. Yeah. Right. And then uh, starting with the Trump presidency and continuing, especially in the COVID, they started just shamelessly censoring the internet right. and coming up with more, you know, intensive propaganda techniques. They're now reaching a kind of a frenzied pitch with the Ukraine crisis. So do you think that maybe the, um, what do we call them? The manufacturers of cons- consent, are trying to propagandize the public into servility and docility in anticipation of this huge economic crunch. There's no question that they're doing that. Whether what their the precise motivation is to do that, whether they foresee uh, rebellion and whether they see foresee pushback, you know, I, I could I could guess yes. But I mean, there, I have no way of knowing that, but it sure looks that way to me. But as you suggest, it's really a foot race. They're, they're trying to normalize this thing, like, you know, normalize censorship, normalize the cancel culture. They're trying to normalize things that are not, you know, permissible in a constitutional republic, on the one hand. On the other hand, though, and this is what makes it a foot race, 
there's a lot of people waking up. I mean, you know, the penny didn't drop for me. Like, wait a minute, this is something's going. You know, what the, the official story doesn't match the facts on the ground. That that moment for me came during the bailouts of 2008, and I, you know, I never looked mm-hmm. back. Then comes COVID. I see a lot of people waking up. You know, I've I've been through this rodeo before, but now I've seen a lot of people wake up. Now you come to to Ukraine, and more and more people are waking up. You know, it, it really only matters. The entire population, I, you know, I used to be up in arms. I was in Chicago for a few days recently on business, and everybody's wearing masks, and not everybody, but a lot of people are still driving around alone with masks. I, I, I stopped worrying about the, the the rest of the population, the majority of the population. It's really the 10%. It's it's like, you know, I think it was John Adams or John, maybe it was John Quincy Adams. He said, no, it was Samuel Adams. He said, you know, it doesn't take it doesn't take a majority to prevail. It, it, what it takes is an irate minority keen on setting brush fires in people's minds. And I think we're seeing that irate minority coming on like gangbusters from the last, you know, certainly the last two um, sort of manufactured events, the pandemic and now Ukraine. You're seeing a lot of lot of people waking up in a hurry. And that's that's really, to me, the foot race is can that mass get to a critical point like 10 percent or whatever the magic number is? Yeah, well, I, I, I would agree. You know, I've been running this foot race now for, what, 20 years or so. And uh, it's, it's kind of sometimes hard to tell, you know, who's gaining ground on whom. But uh, right. there's certainly a, a lot of uh, fully uh, awakened people. And historically, yeah, we've seen, you know, it doesn't take a, a majority, a pretty small minority of the population can uh, change the world. And it just seems like, like you know, a lot of uh, folks these days are spreading the word on the Internet. They're not quite sure what to do in, in real life. Speaking of, of what to do in real life, so you're you're an expert on these uh, financial and monetary issues. What's your advice to the ordinary folks who are now, you know, seeing this crisis coming on? This inflation is raging. Uh, is it going to head in a direction where the uh, fiat uh, usury currencies, uh, especially the dollar, uh, start collapsing, losing their value? And where should people be putting their wealth at this point? I mean, some people, you know, real estate uh, is some say it's it's way out of line. Uh, people are spending way too much of their income on housing right now. Historically, that, you know, we're way above the level it's supposed to be. But then that level just keeps increasing as the billionaires buy up all the housing. Um, will would buying uh, gold and silver be a smart move right now as the dollar goes down and as uh, Russia, China, Iran, other countries are stockpiling precious metals? Uh, what what should people be doing to kind of survive personally? Well, let me first say I'm not an expert on monetary or financial. I'm not. I have no training in that. I just read and read. Well, you're from Solari. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a litigator by training. You know, okay. I do patent litigation, but I read and read and read and read until I understand something. Um, and so that, and I make videos and I take a lot of flack on my YouTube channel from people like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, but I've gotten to learn stuff. And I, you know, like I said, I read a lot but it's for what to do. You know, I don't dispense financial advice because I'm just a, you know, a, a lay person. But what I tell you what I do is, you know, first thing, unplug your TV, get to know your neighbors and keep cash. And I know that doesn't sound consistent with, well, the U.S. dollar is in trouble, but let me tell you something, cash and coins. They're different. There's a different animals. Cash and coin are real money. All the debt-based stuff is not real money. Real money means 
you can make a tender payment if you owe somebody a debt of real money, which in a U.S. legal tender is cash and coin, nothing else. If it's not cash and it's not coin, it's not legal tender, it's not real money. Forget it. So cash and coin, you know, I, I would be flush in that. Um, but your cash and coin is losing, you know, eight, ten, fifteen percent of its value every year. Yeah, but what, yeah, what else are you going to transact in? <laughs> That's true. Uh, wow, yeah. it's uh, no wonder economics is called the dismal science. Now, I now that said, I'm personally a big fan of the um, the, the 1964 and earlier coin silver. I like the 90 percent silver coins. So the silver dollars, half dollars, you know, I like I like those. Um, yeah, those could actually be used. They could be, they, right, exactly. You're killing two birds with one stone there. Um, and then if you've got money, you know, I, I don't, I don't really think you need gold in a monetary system or silver in a monetary system, but you know, those things, you know, come on, man, they have 5,000 years. They've, they've, they've proven the test of time. So if you can afford it, yeah, gold is, I, you know, I think you have to have some gold. I mean, it's just crazy to me not to have like 5%. In gold, and you can move it around too. People think, well, it's heavy; you can't move it. Yeah, you can melt it down. You know, you can make a set of golf clubs out of your gold bar and pretty much go anywhere. Well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> right. Next uh, hobby project, huh? Well, yeah, but that, you, that's, that's probably above my uh, my social class level. But I can imagine someone doing that. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's expensive, right? Gold's gold you know, golf clubs. Yeah, that's that's definitely not me. I, I don't belong to that country club. Yeah. Yeah, me either. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a silver guy. I like, I'm a big fan. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. Me too, actually. So, how, how about uh, crypto? Um, Mr. Rowe, our producer, is uh, an expert and fan of crypto. Uh, yeah, uh, crypto. Boy, I'll tell you this. It alarms me that the DOJ and FBI are able to seize crypto off of these exchanges. I mean, crypto sounds like a great idea, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to take your fiat money. You have to be able to buy stuff at a store. You have to whatever. So whatever currency is being used to transact in, that's what you got to use. And right now that's fiat. So, yeah, it's nice to have crypto, but at the end, you have to get it into, you know, dollars. And you do that through exchanges. And what we've seen again and again is the FBI and the DOJ are very adept. The criminal powers that be are very adept. And they are watching those exchanges like a hawk and they have access to them. So you see them, you know, seizing crypto off of those exchanges where you see that that's where crypto is converted into and out of dollars. So I'd be very I'm a bit of a I'm a skeptic of crypto. But that said, let me tell you this. The, the, the guy who kind of taught me banking is a guy who reached out to me from YouTube. He was from inside the banking system. He sort of walked me through the plumbing and taught me so much. He says no, nah, there's things like true private coins, like Monero. He says that's where you want to be. And I, but I'll tell you, I trust the guy, but I haven't verified that for myself. So okay. what I'm saying, the jury is out on crypto for me. Okay, trust but verify. Well, that makes sense. And yep. uh, genuinely private crypto also makes sense. Maybe I'll talk to Ro about that one of these days. Well, thank you so much, John Titus. I appreciate the uh, thoughts of really good conversation. And uh, I appreciate the work you're doing on your YouTube channel and with uh, Solari. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. That's uh, John Titus.
This is Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. TruthJihad.com is my website. You can subscribe and get the archived versions of these shows ahead of everybody else by going to TruthJihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. You can also, of course, contribute to these great shows on Revolution.radio, the premier free speech network. Just go to Revolution.radio and help them out. Okay, back next week, God willing. Until then, Ramadan Mubarak.